In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Jose Zelstra is this week's guest on Money Tales. Jose wants to change the world. She's doing that by harnessing the power of how we spend our money. Jose is the CEO of Genderfair, a platform where you can find out which companies support gender equality and use your dollars to drive fairness by buying only from the best. The Genderfair seal and 100-point system make conscientious consumerism easy and give companies clear benchmarks and guidelines for improvement. Jose is an established business strategist and an accomplished leader for both startups and global corporations. She acts as a coach to senior executives on boards and top teams and has a passion for supporting and advancing professional women. Jose is an active board member of the Women Business Collaborative, WBC for short, the largest women's business movement for gender equality and diversity. Prior to Genderfair, Jose co-founded Give Back, an innovative platform that makes it easy for companies to build authentic and impactful cause marketing, workplace giving, and other social responsibility initiatives. Give Back was launched on the Oprah Winfrey Show. Hi, this is Sandy. You're going to enjoy this conversation with Jose. Here are three key Money Tales topics that she brings to life in her stories. First, perseverance will get you everywhere. Jose nabbed her first job at a prestigious consulting firm by not taking no for an answer when they told her they already identified their final candidates. Second, always negotiate. Several years into that initial job, Jose was so glad to have gotten, she learned the implications of not having negotiated her salary. And third, money conversations are important in marriages. Jose shares how she and her husband are addressing the differences in their respective money attitudes and preferences. At the end of this episode, Cammie and I talk about a situation we often come across that could benefit from some gender fairness. Now, on to our conversation with Jose Zelstra. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cammie. Sandy, congratulations on being named by Forbes magazine to the 2022 Forbes Top Women Wealth Advisor Best in State list. What a fantastic recognition for your commitment to the profession and to the clients of Experient. Thank you so much, Cammie. I am delighted because several of our colleagues are also on that list. So shout out to Mary Allen Kruger, Linda Kitchens, Helen Dietz, and the wonderful Lisa Coletti, who also was named Forbes 2022 America's Top Women Wealth Advisor. So that's the national list, which is pretty impressive. These recognitions are really exciting, and I think they represent two really important things. The deep bench of talent that we have at Asperient, not just on the wealth management side, but across the firm. We work with incredible people, and importantly, it represents our clients. 
our clients are individuals and families who let us into their lives and trust us with really important money conversations and decisions and allow us to get our arms around all of their affairs and help them articulate their visions for the future and achieve those visions. It's really a delightful thing. And without our clients, this recognition would not be possible. So thanks, Cami, for mentioning that. Cheers to that, Sandy. Speaking of money conversations, what a perfect time to introduce our guest, Jose Zelstra. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Thank you both. And congratulations, Sandy. Thank you, Jose. We're so glad you're here speaking with us today. Would you please start us off with a little bit about yourself and especially a couple pivotal moments that make you the person you are today? Going way back, um, born in the Netherlands and raised there until I was a teenager and immigrated to Canada at age 13, not speaking any English. I knew three words, yes, no, and I don't know. So that was my introduction to an English-speaking country. I was educated there, undergraduate degree and my MBA afterwards. When I graduated with my MBA, we were in the middle of a recession. Jobs were very, very hard to come by. I was very fortunate to land a job in a consulting firm. And that's how I started my career. Very traditional career. Traveled a lot. I was transferred from Canada to New York. I did a few years in Asia and Europe, over eight years of consulting, mostly in strategy. I got a great glimpse of many different organizations and cultures and countries. Really grew up there and had a great team I worked with and then was recruited out to Wall Street. Worked there for six years, learned a lot there. I was helping leaders implement their strategies. After that, I left to become an entrepreneur. I'd married by then and my husband was an entrepreneur. He didn't have an MBA. So I thought, well, how hard is this? You know, I can do that. Not realizing just how difficult it is to take an idea and to operationalize it and actually make money. So I had lots of startups that were not great success. I did one with Oprah, which was fun, wasn't exactly what I thought. And so I continued to venture out. And now I run a company called Gender Fair. We're like the fair trade for women. So we independently rate companies on their fairness practices on gender and equity and diversity. So that's what I do now. I also run a women entrepreneurs network locally to help other women entrepreneurs support each other, motivate each other and build skills. So it's been very fulfilling in that regard. What a great overview. We're going to drill into a lot of that. I just have to know, 13 years old, coming to Canada, not speaking language, just tell us how that felt. Well, you felt a little bit like an outsider, even though I looked like everyone else. So I didn't feel people looked at me differently, but I think it was very formative that you had to just learn the language quickly, adapt quickly, make friends and just keep up. I think it helped that I was less risk averse. I had taken that major step with my family, but it was still in a new environment. And it's given me a lot of adaptability skills that maybe I wouldn't have had otherwise. How did money play a role in your immigration experience? Well, my dad came from a real estate family. He at one point said, I don't want to work for the family business. I want to work on my own. He didn't speak any English. So he learned, he went to school and learned the language and worked for a real estate firm. And then he was an entrepreneur. He ventured out on his own, but there were some tough years. Not that we ever discussed money in the home, but we could definitely feel sometimes the tension. 
And my father always talked about taxes. That was the main topic in our conversation was taxes. Other than that, we didn't really talk much growing up. I didn't learn about money necessarily. My family on the Dutch are known as being thrifty. So we didn't spend money on things that we couldn't afford. We didn't spend with credit cards. There wasn't a lot of material purchasing. It became very clear what my parents valued is where they put their money. They didn't care so much about the kind of car we drove, but they did put us in private school. We traveled very, very well. So first rate travel. So I think they really valued education and experiences over material things. That was how I learned about using money in a way that reflects your values. My mom was very philanthropic. So I still remember growing up and she would have her checkbook and she'd write checks to people or causes and organizations, the church. So I remember that every year she brought out the stack of checks. So she was the philanthropic side of the family. So no money conversations, but a lot of money modeling. Did that create some curiosity for you as you were growing up and looking to launch your career, especially during a recession? That's hard. That's rough. My parents didn't give us a lot of money. They had a little allowance. And growing up, I wanted certain things. I wanted a guitar. I wanted a record player and a television in my room. They just said they could afford it. But no, if you want those things, you're going to have to buy it. And so I started working very early on, 13, like right when we moved to Canada. I worked a summer job at Bob's Burgers, cleaning tables. And then as 14, I got hired into Zellers, which was taken over by Walmart. So I was a cashier after school and on weekends for years earning money. But I loved it. I loved working. I loved making money. I mean, it wasn't much, but I could afford the things that I really wanted that my parents just saw no need to give me. I remember one time asking my dad, I'd like to get a new pair of shoes. He looked at me. He's like, well, you have a pair of shoes. Why do you need another pair of shoes? Such a dad comment. (laughs) So if I wanted it, I had to buy it. What drove you to go get your MBA out of undergrad? I did an undergrad in sociology. I didn't want to go into social work. I didn't want to get a master's or PhD in sociology. So I asked professors and other adults, you know, what do I do? And they said, well, an MBA will give you an opportunity. There's so many different career paths in business. You can have finance or marketing or HR or accounting. There's so many different ways that you could use the MBA. They thought that would be a great way to expand on my career options. I worked in between for a year consulting, and then I went to get my MBA. It was good. And they were right. So you got your MBA and then you started working and traveling and moving around the globe altogether. At this point, you were presumably starting to make some money. Tell us about the money experience of living in different cultures. And especially as someone who grew up having great money models, but not a lot of money conversations, how are you making decisions for yourself? Well, that's an interesting question because as I mentioned in the introduction, I got hired into a big consulting firm, one of the big eight by then, I think it's down to four now, but I responded to an ad in a paper. I initially got rejected that nice letter saying, thanks. No, I was kind of offended. So I called them up. I said, what do you mean? You can just say no without meeting me. This is my first entree into the business world. I said, you at least have to meet me and talk to me before you just send a blind note. And they were like, well, we're already down to our three candidates. And I said, well, if you haven't made a decision, I can come in tomorrow or whatever and talk to you. So they said, fine. 
I got in there. I don't know what I said, but I was pretty confident and they did hire me and I was absolutely thrilled. I didn't even look at what they were paying me. I was just so happy to get a job. The pay was very, very low. It didn't matter to me because I got a job, you know, a real job. Fast forward eight years, I just climbed the corporate ladder. Every year I would get a little percentage increase. I was always a top performer. I moved to New York and that pay didn't really change much. And when I first got to New York, which is about a year and a half after I started with this firm, they said, we have a great project in Asia. We want to send you to China for six months, which ended up being almost two years. And I remember writing post-dated checks to my landlord and I was just living in a shoebox, but I wrote all these checks. I'd just gotten to New York, the city I've always wanted to go to, and then was sent off to China to work there and live in a hotel. So learning different cultures, it was very rewarding to do that. But after eight years, you get burnt out from the travel. And at that time, I was being recruited by an investment bank, sitting in a hotel, doing the interviews. Sure enough, I got an offer. I remember opening up the letter and I'm like, wow, you've got this job. And I looked at the salary for the first time and I was shocked. It was three times what I was making plus a sign-on bonus. I was like, you think I'm worth this much? Like I was so naive. I didn't know what the market was paying. I went over to my boss and I said, I got this offer and I don't have to travel as much and three times my salary plus this bonus. And he looks at me and he looks at the letter and he says, well, we can match that. He did not. How did you respond? I was like, oh, great, because I like it here. But then I started thinking, I'm like, you mean you could actually have paid me more? It's not necessarily a fault of theirs. But I think to myself, when the lessons learned was I should have asked for more or I should have known what the market was paying. Bad of me not to take more initiative. I was always thinking, well, the company takes care of me. I'm a top performer. I'm paid. I just assumed that someone that works so hard and performs well is getting fairly compensated, but it was was one of those lessons. I coach a lot of executive women and four or five years ago, I was coaching her and she was really trying to move up the ladder and she was running a regional team of a fortune 500 company. And then she got a big, big promotion running a global team and she'd wanted that and she worked hard for it and she did all the right things and she got the job. When I was talking to her, she didn't seem that excited. I mean, there was a lot of press around it. And she goes, yeah, I got the job. I won't always want it, but my pay didn't change. Some of the learnings I had earlier on in my career, I coached her to say, listen, we don't even ask anymore. You want me in this job that I work hard for. This is what I need for my compensation. You know, it's no longer, thank you so much for the job. No, you have to make sure that you're paid accordingly. Yose, this is such an important message. I want to understand when you're coaching or when you think back to that time, how do you recommend people know their value? I mean, you thought you were being paid a good amount, but then you find out that they were willing to pay you three times that. How does someone in hindsight understand their value? I think you have to be somewhat proactive. In this case, always be available to get hired elsewhere. There's a lot more transparency now than there used to be. And people are not as afraid to talk about money. 20 years ago, people just didn't talk about it. These are really important money conversations. 
you're telling us to know what the market's bearing for a particular role. Yeah. And I think women especially are not good at this. I don't know why, but I know that men, if they get a promotion, they just slip that piece of paper and say, this is what I expect. Whereas women are like, well, thank you so much for giving me that promotion. I don't know if, if it's through socialization or what. And that was maybe more my generation because I see now young women are much more demanding and are much more confident to say, I've done my homework or I've talked to my colleagues and I know I'm worth more. This leads me to ask some questions about fairness in what you're doing with gender fair, because how do you know what is fair? Sometimes when it comes to dollars and cents, fair can mean the same dollar amounts, but sometimes it doesn't. And I think through conversations I have with clients all the time, clients who have more than one child will oftentimes have concerns about whether they're treating their children fairly from a financial perspective. And the greatest example is the oldest child needed braces. So we paid for braces. The youngest child doesn't need braces. Well, should we be giving the younger child the same amount we paid to the orthodontist for the older child's braces to make things fair? I think most people say, well, no, that doesn't sound right. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, especially as it relates to women and earning money. When it comes to earning money, companies can't discriminate on pay. There's a law. Many companies will say, we pay men and women the same for the same job. But there's a lot of gerrymandering going on too. So they may say, well, this job is slightly different. So we pay that person more. And the median pay gap is what we hear a lot about where companies will say, well, let's take all the salaries of the men, add them up and divide an average and all the salaries of the women employees add up average. And here's the 82 cent pay gap, which is really indicative of that you don't have enough women in the senior level jobs or the jobs that are the most highly compensated. That's an indicator that there is an issue around gender imbalance within an organization. Companies now have a lot of pressure to be more transparent around their pay. So many of them are doing pay audits. And gender fair, we rate companies based on 16 different metrics, with one of them being, has the company conducted an independent pay audit? And are they addressing any pay gaps? They will share that if they have done that on whether it's their annual reports or on their website, in the career sites that they've done that exercise and are addressing any pay issues. If a company has not publicized that they do that, they don't get points and we score them less because they haven't publicized that they've done an equal pay audit. Gender Fair really tries to encourage companies to do better. What I hear you saying is it's really about making sure that there are women at all levels of the organization. Especially the highest paying jobs. So one thing to have women in the C-suite But that's always not indicative either, because we look at the named executive officers, which are the top five individuals that they have to publicize in their SEC reporting, and how many of those are women, also women with P&L responsibilities. And maybe some of the C-suite leaders don't make as much as some of the bankers. So maybe a chief HR officer, they may be in the C-suite or a chief marketing officer. Their compensation is not going to be the same as a banker. Same in real estate. You've got brokers that are making the most money. How is that gender balance? Where the money is really going to? It's not necessarily by level. Could be the most important jobs, the revenue-making jobs. That's a really important distinction. 
What is your takeaway from the results that Gender Fair has generated over the years of doing these audits and collecting this information? What insights do you have to share with our listeners that they can apply to their own personal money situations? We've rated 800 consumer-facing companies on these metrics, pay being one of them. We, as consumers, but also employees and investors, we have a lot of power, power we didn't realize. We're the primary buyer of products and services. We also are generating more wealth and we will hold more wealth in the future. So how do you put that to work? How are you as an individual creating fairness in the system? And we have the power to do that. Maybe not individually, but collectively. So if you're buying one toothpaste brand over another, one is gender fair and the other one's not, If collectively we choose a brand that is, you're rewarding companies that are doing the right things and then incentivizing those who are not to do better and create some competitiveness. I really think that over time, especially young generation, they care more and more about the values of an organization. And we've done a massive research study on what do people care about when it comes to fairness in organizations and then put that to work, act on it because you have the power to do that. And men even care about this sometimes even more than women do. We can't leave them out. Let me touch on, Jose, your comments about entrepreneurship. As you were venturing into a startup business, what were you thinking about money? You were less risk averse as a child. How were you thinking about money when you were going into this higher risk endeavor? At the time, I had saved a lot of money. I was more of a saver than a spender. So I thought, well, this is going to carry me a couple of years so I can pursue some of my passions. And my husband was also on the entrepreneurial track. We were pretty careful those early years in terms of how we spent money. Were you budgeting? Not well. We had a budget and it didn't always. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just curious how you checked in with each other and how you tracked us. The intention was to check in if it was over 500, but my husband loves to shop. He's a spender. Different culture. And this is what they don't teach you in premarital classes, your family history and how you view money and how you spend it. And he didn't value the same things I value as my parents valued, which was grand travel. He liked gadgets and cars and, you know, which I didn't value. So give and take. And we've learned over the years to do better. And our earnings have obviously improved over time as well. But prior to the pandemic, when we were starting to have more earnings, we outsourced a lot of things just so we could keep focusing as entrepreneurs on our work. So we had a dog walker, we had a housekeeper, we had someone to do laundry, someone to do the yard, someone to pick up the poop in the yard. We just outsourced anything that we didn't want to do. And that was low value so that we could spend time with our kids outside of work. Well, that just creeps in. We had all these people either living in our home or working in our home all the time. It was too crazy. And then the pandemic hit and we stopped everything. We kept paying a little bit, but we just said, we're going to do this. We're home. We're locked down. We were doing the yard work. I was cleaning the toilets and I was doing the laundry, the dogs and everything. So we learned new skills. My kids learned new skills because they were always just waiting for someone to pick up after them. That was a good thing that came out of the pandemic because we learned to be much more self-reliant and just build it into your day. And the kids were a little bit older, so they could do some of this work from when they were little that we had outsourced. We haven't brought it all back yet. We just brought back the cleaning lady and that was it. We just pick up. We don't pay for that because they live here and they have to do their own laundry and then cooking and whatever else. And we manage. 
they ever complain about fairness? They're three boys. So they see the world a little differently at this age. I think they'll see at some point that the balance shifts a little bit when they get out in the real world. I think it was great to consider outsourcing, find your experts so you can focus on what you've determined is the priority for your time. But I also, you raised a great example of scope creep where things started expanding unintentionally. Yosei, how did you and your husband come to terms with the fact that you had different money behaviors and perspectives? That is something that happens all the time. We see it among our client base. Even though it's normal, it still can be challenging. I can't say that we've solved that issue. Both of us have moved a little bit to each other. So he's become a little more thrifty. I'm a little bit more flexible when it comes to spending than I used to be. So we have come together more over the past 20 years. But there's still signs where I say, do they really need three Nike shoes? Oh, your dad's creeping into the conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Can't we just pass down, you know, all these clothes? And because I donate everything. And I'm like, this has never been worn. And why do we keep replacing? I think we have 200 baseball hats and nobody wears them. So it's just things like that. But I know they're small priced items, but I think all that adds up. I've tried to not go out to eat every night, even though it's convenient trying to eat more at home. And that's been nice too. But I think there's still a little tension in terms of, well, you're spending all this on vacation and vacations are expensive. And I'm saying you're still spending all this money on Nike shoes, but we've learned to let it go a little bit. It sounds like you're talking about it though, and you're acknowledging to each other the different values, which is great. Are you having many conversations with your children? Good question. When the first two were young, we were more careful with our spending and they knew that. Now that we are a little bit more financially secure, the youngest didn't have that time where if he wanted something, no, you're going to get your older brother's shoes, not a new pair. Yes, in one regard, we still talk about it, but not as well as we should. Certainly not the way my dad encouraged us to be thrifty. And I think the youngest, especially, I don't know if it's his negotiation skills or our laziness or we just get worn out and we just give in too much. So that's something that I have to address. Whereas the older ones, they go to a school that's very diverse. We give back a lot. We do a lot of service hours and we donate. So they are seeing that not everyone has what we have now and we should be grateful and we should be good stewards of our money too. So it's more by action than discussion, I think, that we're teaching, you know, the value of money. Which is what your parents did. We talk a lot about the value of modeling. What's a piece of money wisdom that we maybe haven't covered yet that you'd like to share with our listeners? When I first started my career, money was just a way for me to be independent, make my own decisions on my spending, food, clothing, shelter, entertainment, travel, and to meet my needs. And now I think money confirms the direction of my life. So if I'm getting paid for something as an entrepreneur, I see that my work adds value. My time is valuable. People are willing to pay for that time. I'm also at a stage in my life where I love to give back. I want to invest in women. I want to meet the needs. If there's a need in the community, I love that I'm able to do that where I didn't have that 15, 20 years ago. I'm now in a position that I can meet some needs of others. So that's very gratifying. What's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? My youngest. <laughs> he now has access to my Amazon account somehow. He's only 11 boxes show up in my name 
with things that I never bought or needed. So enough said. <laughs> that sounds like an important conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Money Tales. I appreciate your sharing. I'm really excited about what you're doing at Gender Fair. Thank you for sharing and thank you for your work. Thank you. Sandy, that was a really fantastic conversation with Jose. The work that they're doing over at Gender Fair is intriguing and gets me thinking about my own experiences. And I'll tell you one almost unconscious bias. It was when my CPA firm that I'd been working with for a long, long time, maybe a decade, when I got married without me saying to do this, they made my husband the primary on the account. I hate that. Yeah, it was really weird. And at first, I tried not to think about it too much. Then I started trying to figure out why would they do that? His last name is actually later in the alphabet than I am. So I was looking for a reason. And to this day, I don't know the answer. And what's been fun is I've talked to him about it and he laughs too. He's like, are you kidding me? I don't know why they did this. I can relate to that. I've had that situation many times. And while my husband can certainly hold his own when it comes to financial decisions and financial affairs, just like I know Roland can, it ticks me off and steams me when I feel disrespected in that way. In my experience as a wealth manager, there have been numerous times where couples have come to us saying that one of them was completely ignored when talking with other firms or working with their prior advisor. I do think it is unconscious bias and it's really unfortunate. It seems to be that oftentimes the loudest person in the room will get the attention. But when we look at clients, each and every client of ours is so important. We need to hear what they're saying. It doesn't matter what their gender is. It doesn't matter if they're married or not married. It's our job to really pay attention and hear what's on the mind of each of them. It can be a natural inclination to talk to the primary breadwinner if there is a primary breadwinner, let's assume there is. So then the natural inclination might be, it's really unfortunate because both people are important. Both have to understand, both have to feel comfortable expressing their questions or concerns, interests and goals. And I think if we only look at one or defer to one or prioritize one, then the other person feels reluctant to express their questions and other thoughts because they feel like, oh, it's not important. When we're working with a couple, both of those individuals are equal clients. It doesn't matter which one prefers to say more in a meeting or not. We need to check in with each of them along the way, make sure we're answering questions, make sure we're addressing issues and making sure that we solicit the input of both individuals because we're planning for them together. I wish the world was different. I'm hopeful that unconscious bias will be removed over time with awareness that it happens. The first step is becoming aware. I look forward to that day because the world should be different. That's the ask out there. And I appreciate Jose Zelstra, what she shared in her stories and what they're doing at Gender Fair to create awareness around this and help people be informed and be intentional with their, their buying dollars more holistically than what you and I are talking about. There's so much power in how we spend money. And if collectively our society spent more time thinking about how we were spending our money and what businesses were supporting, our world can be a very different place like Jose imagines it will be. At the start of this conversation, I've referenced the Forbes 2022 
top women wealth advisor, best in state and national lists, where five of Asperian women wealth managers were named, including Money Tales co-host Sandy Brager. Neither Asperian nor its employees paid a fee for placement on the Forbes top women wealth advisors, best in state and national rankings. Each advisor is chosen based on an algorithm of qualitative and quantitative criteria, including in-person interviews, industry experience, compliance records, revenue produced, and assets under management. MoneyTales listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode. And as always, you can reach Sandy and me at podcasts at Asperient.com. We would love to hear your personal money stories. And if you have someone you'd like to recommend joining us as a guest on Money Tales, please send us an email. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.